Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Library Science Channel on New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm joined by Michelle Warren, author of Holy Digital Grail, a medieval book on the internet, published by Stanford University Press in 2022. Medieval books that survive today have been through a lot. Singed by fire, modeled by mold, eaten by insects, annotated by readers, cut into fragments, or damaged through well-intentioned preservation efforts. In Holy Digital Grail, Michelle Warren tells the story of one such manuscript, an Arthurian romance with textual origins in 12th century England, now diffused across the 21st century internet. This trajectory has been propelled by a succession of technologies, from paper manufacture to printing to computers, and together they've made literary history itself a cultural technology indebted to colonial capitalism. Michelle Warren is a scholar of medieval Europe and is professor of comparative literature at Dartmouth College. Michelle, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so let's dive into talking about your book. Um, This was such a rich book. There's so much to talk about. Uh, And I guess to set the stage, you've presented a digital or multimedia approach technological approach to book history. What was your inspiration for doing that? And what kind of audiences did you have in mind when you set out to share this approach? Well, to answer that question of inspiration, I'm going to have to go back in time a bit because this is a book that honestly developed from the beginning of my time in graduate school, low 30 years ago. (laughs) So my approach to the, the project has really grew by necessity over time. Um, As you mentioned, the book is about one particular copy of a story about King Arthur and the Holy Grail. That copy is a unique English translation from French, and it was made in the 15th century by a furrier. So this would be like probably a businessman who was part of a guild called the Skinner's Guild. We don't know a lot about him, but we do know his profession. Um, So not necessarily the person you imagine making a very big translation project um, into a fancy manuscript, but that's part of what's intriguing about the story. Uh, His name was Henry Lovelich, and uh, I didn't end up writing about him in my PhD dissertation or even in my first or second books, (laughs) but I had a lot of little ideas about him and this book over the years, and I wrote some articles and gave a lot of presentations. But I couldn't quite convince anyone that this all added up to a book, though I did keep trying. And there's sort of a prejudice against publishing books about single books or single manuscripts. Um, So I was just kind of wrestling with that over the years. And so it turns out, though, that Henry's book is part of a famous library in England, the Parker Library at Corpus Christi College, Cambridge. Um, And in 2009, Parker Library opened a website with digital copies of many of the manuscripts in partnership with Stanford University Libraries. 
I was fortunate to work at an institution that paid the expensive subscription. <laughs> and then I was able to make a lot more progress on my ideas because I could access the photos regularly. I didn't have to travel back to Cambridge just to like check a question I had about something um, on Folio 32. Uh, Gradually, though, I started to realize that the website wasn't just convenient. It was a whole new way of making and reading books. Um, and because my project had developed over such a long period of time, I started having trouble reconciling all the various kinds of research I'd done. Some of it was analog and archives. Some of it was digital. Some of it was uh, photographs. Um, some of it was editions. And... I can't quite pinpoint the exact aha moment, but at a certain moment, I may, I realized that I needed to make those methods themselves the focus of the project. And at that point, the pieces starting added up to much more than a book about one book. Um, at that point, it became about how we research today and the particular book was just one example. Um, I thought a lot of people would be interested in this story. I mean, obviously, most narrowly, King Arthur and the Holy Grail are very recognizable uh, themes, and there's a lot of text related to them. So this would be fascinating. This is a fascinating, a little understood instance of that bigger phenomenon um, that is King Arthur and the Grail. Um, more broadly, as I mentioned, the book ended up being about how we research now. And so it has lessons for medieval studies and for many other areas of cultural and literary studies where we have uh, 3D artifacts that also have digital representations. This affects almost er almost every area of, of study today. Um, most broadly, honestly, if you use the internet for searching, even just for shopping, I hope that my book provides a really clear illustration of what goes on behind the digital scenes uh, and offers yet another caution against uncritical uses of digital sources. Amazing. Thanks. Um, and so in each of the chapters of this book, we look at different understanding different understandings of book history as a history of systems, infrastructure, and technology. And your first chapter chapter examines the technology of translation. Gives us an opportunity to introduce your case study of MS-80, which you've talked a little bit about already, but um, I don't know if you want to share any more about what this manuscript is and then um, what it shows us about the technology of translation, what we believe about translation, and how translation itself has power. For sure. So MS-80 is the, it's called 80 because that's the Parker Library shelf number for the book that Henry made or translated, and then the book that got made out of his translation. This is a large format manuscript made of paper, um, about 200 leaves, so it's quite large. Um, it has double columns, so the text is... Um, displayed across the pages and designed for illustration. So there are gaps in these columns of text where there should have been pictures. And then this is actually a big part of what drew me to the book in the first place. When I first visited Cambridge in 1996, I was surprised to see all these blank spaces. Um, I had read the text in a printed edition and I hadn't there was no particular notice of this phenomenon in the manuscript. Uh, so that was my first translation question. Was the book somehow a translation of a particular source 
including the format as well as the text. Uh, so it took a lot of sleuthing through many copies of French sources, but in the end, I did find a French book that is very similar to MSAE. And this connection points directly to the relationship between translation and power. So in 15th century London, illustrated French books represented the prestige of the aristocracy, the kind of people who would have imported literature and uh whether they were actually reading it or not is a separate question, but the books themselves would signify some uh, level of wealth. Um, and I mentioned that Henry was a furrier. He was a member of a guild, the Skinner's Guild, and he had a patron who was a more prominent businessman and politician in the guild. I also mentioned that the book was quite large. So with the translation project, Henry and his patron also named Henry, unfortunately, <laughs> um, set out to bring aristocratic prestige to this new audience of social climbers who were members of the guild, businessmen importing and selling the furs um, to all of the, mo the most elite members of London, including all the way up to the king. So the story that these guild members would learn in this book starts with the beginning of Christianity, when the legendary Joseph of Arimathea supposedly gathered some of Christ's blood in a vessel and carried it to what would become England. Some of his descendants would become knights of King Arthur's Round Table, and they would be aided by the ubiquitous Merlin. So all in all, this was a history book that brought key cultural knowledge to this new civic audience around the guild. I think one of the most common beliefs about translation, though, is that it should be accurate. So Henry, however, did something quite unusual when he was translating. He turned prose into rhyming couplets. So this is already going to change quite a lot about the way the story is told. He had a particular aesthetic vision about how the story would come across. But when modern readers came to this text in the 20th century, they judged Henry to be a bad translator because by then people had very different definitions of good poetry. Personally, I really like Henry's flavor of writing. <laughs> he did many invented things with the French source. And so one thing I try to do in the book is show some of that creativity and shift some of the terms for making literary judgments. Um, and this is all about reviving concepts of translation that are independent from uh, today's aesthetic assumptions. Super. Thank you. Um, and then the second chapter moves on to exploring the context of this manuscript. And this felt to me like more than just the producers, I really appreciated how you refer to context more broadly as community. So how does MS-80 perform community and how is it used to negotiate community? Uh, the community part is really essential um, and it is quite a, a very specific choice to talk about community rather than context since, uh, again, in literary studies, we, can, we have two extreme branches, which is uh, context is totally irrelevant and context determines all the meaning. So I'm trying to find a way to talk about the ways in which community around the text does interact with meaning production without falling into either of those extremes. Uh, 
So as I mentioned, the translation and the book were made in a corporate context. These are business people and their servants and all of the people involved in this import-export business. Um, the evidence for that context um, is both internal and external to the text. So I tried to bring those two kinds together to imagine this community who uh, two members of which set out to make the book and at least imagined that it would end up uh, used and read in this uh, guild community that they were a part of. Um, the catalyst for that approach is a tiny marginal note on all the way in on folio 127, uh, so quite far into the book, which was made in the later 15th century that connects the two Henrys. So this note says that Henry Lovelich Skinner made the translation at the instance of Henry Barton. And so this is a clue to the patronage relationship between the two Henrys, and that led me off in search of other documents of their relations and Barton's overall biography. Placing them both in that guild community broadens the notion of community even further in light of the social and political significance of guilds in London at the time. So I did a whole, learned a lot about social history and business history in the city in that in the early 15th century. Um, the community of the city and the realm is actually a vocabulary of freeze uh, that was common in public discourse at the time and that also comes across in the translation. And of course, as I mentioned, the content of the translation is a history of the British nation. So it connects to community in that largest national sense. Um, within the translation, Henry makes all kinds of choices that convey a strong sense of community engagement between him and his imagined audience. He's constantly addressing the audience with directly with pronouns such as you and we over and over again. Um, he finds ways to highlight the city of London itself as a locus of action for the Arthurian events. And it becomes quite easy then to imagine the book being read aloud as a way of bringing people together over shared knowledge of these important national myths. Of course, there's no specific evidence that the book ever reached its intended purpose, but the picture I think is pretty clear from the text and from the format and from all that we know about guild culture um, in general. Yeah, and you've mentioned um, a, a tiny annotation in the margin um, that that kind of directed um, you to some research in that chapter itself. But um, the next chapter, chapter three, we also shift to the community of readers and specifically how readers interact with texts. So this is where we see the long history of annotation in texts, uh, from annotation in vellum to HTML syntax. What did you learn here about uh, what we can understand from the motivations behind text annotations? And if you want to share any examples, specific examples, that'd be amazing. Yeah, so I would even say even in this annotation that I mentioned about the translators in a sense, and other catalyst for the whole project. <laughs> um, but the motivations are so variable. Um, so there's so many kinds of handwriting in MS-80, everything from little doodles to outline marks to cataloging marks. 
Um, I would even say that the marking uh, process starts with the making of paper itself, which leaves lines and watermarks um, that then become part of uh, the reading experience. Um, those marks continue all across the centuries to some evidence of how the book was prepared for digitizing. Um, and then we have eventually the digital copies themselves. And this is where marking kind of makes that transition from analog to digital because of the, you know, the way we talk about HTML as markup, right? That's what it stands for, hypertext markup language. So this concept of marking for me is what ties together the uh, original written manuscript with the digital copies. And one of the things I try to show is how this digital markup actually has many of the same functions of older handwritten marks. Some of the motivations for these marks were so per were so personal, and we can't even really speculate about their purposes or motivations. Uh, it seems that, for example, that a woman named Anne wrote her name on one on one page, or maybe it wasn't Anne herself. Maybe it was someone thinking about Anne. <laughs> I wasn't ever able to identify Anne, um, but just that word semi-randomly, it seems, in the, in a margin in the middle of the page, uh, is evidence of someone thinking and engaging on a very personal level, not with the text, but with the available space, blank space, that was there in the middle of the page. Uh, very differently, though, some of the early annotators did have clear intentions and make patterns. There are several who were very interested in Christian history and in genealogies related to Arthur. And these seem to be some of the reasons why the book was collected at the Parker Library in the first place by Matthew Parker, who was Archbishop of Canterbury and had some responsibilities for defending the British church against Rome um, under Elizabeth I. So there's some, you know, very content-related interest that the book seemed to be providing confirmation of some very useful historical facts about how old British Christianity was. And though that process of collecting by Parker and his associates also left a bunch of marks in the book There's that point to institutional histories of the library itself. There's some other marks that some editors, if you can believe this, dared to write the chapter numbers of their editions into the margins of the text next to where they were um, uh, editing out the text. So that's something that would be unheard of today. But in the 19th century, apparently they were, someone got away with this. <laughs> um, finally, I would say digital markup um, has also these same similar kinds of instructions and commentary. There's even one um, HTML snippet that documents the work of one of the original programmers. So, you know, people may not realize that in an HTML page, you can also annotate things that are not instructions for the machine, but that is commentary for human readers of the HTML. And there's some really interesting examples of that in the Parker Library original website. So my main point is that annotations and these other marks aren't just personal expressions, nor are they meaningless incidentals but they all emerge from networks of relationships that we can try to recover. And in making those networks visible, we're going to understand uh, texts and books in whole new ways. Definitely. And I was thinking a lot here. I 
like I'm embarrassed to say out loud, I've recently become the kind of person who writes a lot more notes in the margins of print books that I'm reading, only in pencil. Um, but reading this made me think about how some of the kind of annotation I do, like what, what the work is that it's doing and how some of those annotations are actually maybe influenced by the type of markup I'm used to having in an online document. Um, and I need that functionality on the printed page or, or other things. It's, it's really interesting to think about how we are um, influenced to annotate. Oh, yeah, I love that comment because it also shows another really important lesson I, I hope to draw people draw from the book, which is that technology doesn't go in a linear fashion from manuscript to print to digital. But for us today, the three are constantly interacting. So when you're saying you have some habits based on digital documents that you're observing that maybe you're importing them into your printed book writing, uh, that's a really beautiful example of that constant interaction between handwriting, printing, and digital. Um, I hope you won't be embarrassed about those writings in the margins. I mean, you might become famous and someone's going to care about how you were reading. So feel free to use pen if you prefer. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll let someone enjoy them if the, or be annoyed with my annotations 50 years in the future. Um, so then moving on to the, the fourth chapter of this book, um, I am someone who thinks about it, does the work of cataloging in my job. And so I was so excited that you have a chapter here on how cataloging has impacted the book. What are some of the ways you discovered that cataloging MS-80 has been not only descriptive, but also prescriptive? And what should we keep our eyes open to as the impacts of cataloging work on how a book lives and circulates in the world? Well, I'm so glad to hear you say that. Um, I have to say, if I had to choose a favorite chapter, it would be the cataloging chapter. <laughs> um, I think of the book as something of what librarians call a user journey of the pathways of the books through infrastructure. Um and I still consider one of my highest triumphs as a teacher talking to a whole room full of undergraduates about how fascinating catalogs were. And they don't, I don't think they fell asleep. So <laughs> I'm just so intrigued and fascinated by all of that has gone into this cataloging, cataloging process. And MS80 and the Parker Library have been cataloged multiple times, which makes it an incredible case study. There's not today still any one place you can go to to get all the information about all the manuscripts. You have to use multiple catalogs and sources if you want to understand any specific book in the collection. Um, so I think that's also a really important point about what's special about this case, yet also representative of what is so commonly the case in cataloging. Um, we tend to treat them as definitive, but they really are often temporary. They're often multiple, and they're just a lot of contingencies to understand in what we call a catalog. Um, so for the, in terms of your question about uh, examples of prescriptiveness, I would say the most obvious example is the genre classification of romance. So this is the term a modern reader would use to find Henry's translation. And when I first found it, I quickly learned that I was supposed to think that it is a bad romance because that's what all the handbooks of literary history said. Uh, it turns out, though, that the book only became a romance in an 18th century catalog. So 
of the person who gave that title, James Naismith, thought it was a great romance because he was using his 18th century standards. Um, before that time, people approached the text as history, as I mentioned that before. After Naismith, um, his catalog remained in use up until the early 20th century, and it inspired a, a lot of the 19th century reaction to the book. So the first edition by Frederick Furnival was published um, not just once, but twice. And Furnival was completely animated by a 19th century um, idea of medieval romance. That popularity really drove a lot of the early printed editions of medieval English literature. And some of those editions are still the only ones we have. So that romance idea from an earlier century is still deeply embedded in the way we engage with literature. And that's the case for MS-80. The editions we have and probably will ever have are the ones that Furnival printed. But in the early 20th century, literary historians started applying modern aesthetics to all these printed texts. They decided that romance as a genre was just frivolous in general, and that Henry's text in particular was definitely one of the worst. Um, and multiple scholars would go so far as to recommend that no one should go and try to read it. Uh, fortunately, I didn't read all those things before I started reading it. So I was uh, not informed and that turned out to be a blessing. Um, so those judgments though, from 19th century and 20th century print are still scattered across all the digital systems that represent medieval literature today because those digital systems rely so much on earlier print records. So when you search a word like romance, the results are going to depend on all those accidents rather than on any cohesive classification system. And obviously, literary scholars today have done a whole lot of work to recuperate the reputation of romance. Um, and I don't think we have entirely this uh, negative notion in the field, but the data systems keep recycling the negative notions from earlier periods. So you asked me too to uh, think about what should we look for in terms of the impacts of cataloging in general. I would say glitches inconsistencies and absences. Uh, those things are all, of course, hard to grasp if you're just looking at one example, um, especially absences. So you need to really be comparing multiple records, multiple catalogs, multiple databases. Um, but one way or another, what's happening in the metadata is always significant. It all came from somewhere. Um, so I guess my general advice would be if you find yourself relying on a catalog or a piece of metadata as a key fact, take time to examine how it came to be and what forces or accidents might have shaped it into the appearance of a fact. That might be the real story of your research. Uh, and know that if a search process is based on a particular database, the history of that database is definitely shaping your results. So making the history part of the story is part of even knowing what the story is. I really believe that so strongly and would love to see much more literary, book history, all kinds of research, including some analysis of what look like the neutral sources of information that lie behind the story that someone ends up telling. Yeah, that's actually 
nerdily exciting to think about. <laughs> uh, yeah, all the all the research possibilities and looking at um, what the what the metadata can tell us if we think about how it got there. Um, and so then the fifth and sixth chapters of this book look at issues that sat together in my mind as more infrastructural, creating additions and reproductions of a work. And here I saw themes of culture, politics, and financial capital running through both of these chapters, um, how editorial work is entangled with the history of language, how reproduction work is entangled in discourse about the value of cultural heritage, and then how both are tied up with financial systems reliant on capitalism and colonialism. So could you share a few examples of how you saw these themes of money and culture and politics coming out in the history of MS-80 being editioned and reproduced? Well, thanks so much for framing the question that way. Uh, I I also see these two chapters as closely connected. Um, The lesson of both is basically follow the money. (laughs) That's where the story is. Um, So for the editing part of MS-80, because there's been so many different editions and representations of, so one single edition, but it's been represented in so many ways, we can really track how the funding models have determined the format of the edition and thus the rhetorics of literary value that surround those publications. So under aristocratic patronage in the 19th century, the text was published by Fernal, and it became a deluxe limited edition in two large volumes, only available to 40 fancy aristocrats <laughs> um, called the Roxburgh Club. Uh, Fernal, though, had essentially a populist uh, bent, and so he followed that project up with what became the Early English Text Society, which published the majority of medieval English literature for decades and still does publish editions um, on a subscription basis that Furnival initiated. And in that context, the text that had been printed for the Roxburgh Club was reprinted as a cheap paperback. And so the type of literature it was, was very different in that paperback format than it was in a deluxe large volume. Uh, Vagaries of copyright law today have now made those texts that were printed in the 19th century available for free on some platforms and by subscription on some other platforms. And that distinction in the funding of a digital platform also determines the digital formatting and the context that can or can't be found around the text. Uh, What's fascinating to me is that one way or another, this so-called worst English romance ever written (laughs) had never been out of print since 1860. And nowadays, you can get a brand new print copy via print-on-demand, P-O-D. Just go on your Google and search Lovelich Grail and you'll find lots of ways to buy one. Um, And what you're paying for there is literally the cost of the paper because the digital PDF is freely available because it's out of copyright. The sales pitch, though, for POD, if you sort of read the back cover of your new printed book, is all about the preservation of prestigious cultural heritage. So if that sounds familiar, that's because that's more or less the same motivation of the bookmakers back in the 15th century. So we've come full cycle on the concept of cultural heritage, yet 
so many material and technological changes along the way. In every case, the, mon the money model has determined the formatting and the framing of the text. All right, so that's for editions. You asked me about reproduction. So that this would be copies of the book overall rather than just of the text. And here, I think my favorite story has to be the rebinding of the manuscript in the 1950s. So as I mentioned, I've been dealing with this book for a very long time. I've opened it many times, whether in Cambridge on a table or online on my computer. And for some reason, over these many years, I had never really noticed that the very first page of the book is actually a modern flyleaf, and it has an annotation on it. Uh, so this annotation records the date of a rebinding that was financed in the 1950s by a grant from the Pilgrim Trust. The moment I noticed this little note, I had a new question. Who was the Pilgrim Trust and why were they rebinding books? <laughs> uh, so this became another tiny catalyst for a big story. Uh, it turns out that Pilgrim Trust was, and is, um, a philanthropy founded by an American, Edward Harkness, who rivaled the Rockefellers and the Carnegies in his day in the late 19th, early 20th century. And so from this tiny note on the flyleaf, I was able to connect MS-80 to a whole set of colonialist and capitalist maneuvers in 19th century United States. Um, I show how the preservation of books and cultural heritage actually relied on xenophobic nationalism and settler colonialism. Uh, these are some harsh truths for historians of all stripes, but especially for book historians who are a bit habituated to being very happy about all the preservation of old things. Um, but they, however harsh they are, these truths are key parts of book history, and we can be grateful for preservation while also acknowledging the true impact of the capital that's made it possible and the legacies behind that capital accumulation. So in the case of MS-80, it's part of a whole, also a bunch of other Parker manuscripts that were rebound. About a third of the collection got new bindings through this Pilgrim Trust grant. And these are the reasons that the books have the formats they have today. And it's that extractive capital history that's linked with Native American indigenous genocide that is why we can still open the book today. Yeah, and that I feel like that story is probably not so unique to MS-80 as we would like no, to make. I think those stories permeate our cultural heritage institutions um, and the books we hold. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the other piece of it, of course, is that the digital Parker Library uh, received the bulk of its initial founding from the Mellon Foundation. And so Andrew Mellon is a whole other dimension of this and the ways in which the financing of the digital platform, although library-based, is also bound up in these dynamics and then the universities themselves that are hosting these materials, whether the physical ones in Cambridge or the digital ones in Stanford, like, is all connected to how the, the shape these places have um, today is you know, deeply grounded in those imperialist histories that go back to the 16th century. Really? It's all about money. Um, 
Well, and then thinking, you know, about how you traced all of these different routes and chased down all these stories, you shared in the conclusion that tracking all these threads felt like unraveling a vast conspiracy theory. Um, and so I guess as a method for studying a single book, what did your really expansive and interdisciplinary research path teach you? And what are some lessons you would share with other book history scholars? Um. Um, the first thing I would say is maybe the obvious, you can do a lot with a little, <laughs> uh, so, you know, little incidental things. Um, sometimes it was just a matter of, you know, I've seen this thing a hundred times, but let me now ask myself like why it's there, how it got there. And that would open up a whole new avenue. Um, and I got to, you know, a place where I felt I could make some larger claims about networks, about infrastructure, all out of this gradual accumulation of these small catalysts. And I think that's a really important part of my own methods of research that I had to make peace with. I can't go fast, gotta go, gotta go through all these details because that's where the big story and the big picture story will actually emerge from. So I get another lesson I would wanna emphasize is following the trail where it leads. I mean, these, these two lessons are connected, but, um, you know, following a trail can often mean learning a decent amount about whole fields outside of what you might consider your expertise or your specialization. Um, I definitely did not start out a specialist. Um, well, I didn't start out a specialist in English literature, period. My degree is in French so I came to this project from the French sources in some ways originally, and then got pulled into English literary history through this specific book, um, and MS-80, that is. And so, I mean, I like to say that experts are just former amateurs who studied a lot. And that's, to me, the essence of scholarship is going to do the studying where you need to in order to answer the questions that come out of the materials you come across. Super. Yeah, that openness um, and willingness to ask more questions and learn more things. It can feel hard when we're under pressure to do research, but it's such a good reminder of like the value in being um, being more methodical. Well, I do. I, I mean, there's a reason why this is my third book and not my first. <laughs> uh, my first book is all based on editions because of because that's what I had the capacity to deal with, right? In the time frame that I had to do to write that book because, and so it's also, I think, very important to acknowledge the structural and financial privilege that I had of being in a secure position uh, at a well, you know, then I was able to just pick away at this project over time rather than being on that sort of, you know, time pressure, um, which I did have earlier. And I did, in fact, shape my research questions in related to the constraints um, that I had on my own infrastructure constraints, right? I couldn't travel regularly when I was a starting out scholar. Um, and so I made peace with that and I used printed editions. And then I made a whole argument about their validity as uh, primary sources for doing literary history. And you know, I stand by all that. Um, I like one of the lessons of this book is that any source in any format, even the bad copy and the bad edition, they can be good sources of a really interesting history. You just figure out how to shape them and what questions to ask and what you notice that might be worth following up on. 
Absolutely. I love that reminder that every source is a good source and has something to teach us. Um, I really think that's true. Um, well, I've taken a lot of your time today, but before we wrap up, I would love if you could share a little bit about what you're working on next. Uh, no pressure, but do you have any new projects that have grown out of this book or anything completely new that you're working on? Well, so the book's been out for a year. Uh, honestly, at the time that I finished, I did not expect to ever have another new idea again. <laughs> um, as I've mentioned, like this book developed over such a long time. I was also quite sick in the middle of finishing it and finishing it was exhausting. Um, I considered these would probably be my last big scholarly words, just to be frank. Um but the last year has been surprising. Um, I've had some conversations with some relatively new scholarly friends, and I'm just so grateful for those relationships. And I got inspired with some new ideas, in fact. So I want to really sh shout out the encouragement of my colleague, Sierra Lomudo. Uh, she's helped me think very broadly about time and technology. So I've just finished an essay that's called The Medieval of the Long Now that connects another medieval historian, another Henry, actually, Henry of Huntington from the 12th century. I'm connecting his thoughts on millennial time to the current work of the Long Now Foundation. Uh, this is a group of uh, engineers, entrepreneurs, and uh, just sort of wealthy big thinkers include Stuart Brand and Jeff Bezos of Amazon has a role in this. Um, they're thinking about long-term millennial time. So Henry, this Henry of Huntington, is amazing because he writes the history of England in the 12th century. And in his original conclusion, he takes time to address readers of the third Christian millennium, specifically, not just in general, but specifically potential readers of the year 2135. <laughs> so this is just an incredible little tidbit. Uh, along the way, I had to learn a bit about T.S. Eliot for um, some uh, very interesting reasons. And uh, this is still the, that really makes this the kind of project I love, finding something unexpectedly intriguing and diving in to learn and create new connections. So I'm really, really happy about this expansion of the concept of time and technology. And I can't wait for this essay to be out in the world. It's really specifically addressed to not medievalists. So I'm also hoping that it will resonate with uh, people working in more contemporary periods and that it will help people understand the long histories that medievalists can bring to these conversations about technology. Uh, another colleague I have to really acknowledge and shout out is Anne Calderon. Um, I she got me inspired to invoke through an invitation to write a sort of manifesto about translation, and this also comes out of my thinking on in Holy Digital Grail. I've basically taken some lessons from the book and applied them to a 12th century medieval French poet. Um, the essay is called Extreme Translation, Six Medieval Lessons for Everyone. And it really is something of a manifesto. It was really freeing to just say what I think in a pithy, punchy way. Um, there's a section in there about machine translation that I especially like. And I think this is the 
perhaps the beginning of a whole other new area of me thinking about text translation and technology as we have so much public discourse right now about chat, GPT, and other large language models. Um, so basically, I'm encouraging people, once again, to find value in all kinds of translations, even those typically called bad. Oh, this sounds so um, fun and, and exciting um, and really neat to see the connections between the work you've done and, and how it's leading you in new places. Uh, so thank you so much. Uh, thank you for taking time to chat today. Once again, my name is Jen Hoyer, and I've been speaking with Michelle Warren, author of Holy Digital Grail, published by Stanford University Press. Thank you for listening to New Books Network. Mm -hmm.